Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where I interview guests about their crazy, unique occupations or life experiences. I'm your host, Leslie Fear. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today, I'm joined with Jordan Dwayne. You might know her as Jordan the Grey Witch on TikTok. I have been amazed and just enthralled with her work on TikTok and her videos. Uh, Jordan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about serial killers today, some of my favorite subjects. <laughs> and you, in the past, did a paper specifically on Eileen Warnos. And I think that is so cool because I don't think we've ever just focused on a woman. And I think the dynamics will be different than maybe a man who's a serial killer. What do you think about that? So that was actually the reason that I chose Eileen Warnos. And it was for my Psych 101 class, which was many, many years ago now. Okay. But I said, you know, well, everyone's doing male serial killers. I want to do a female serial killer. And I remember right. my teacher saying, well, there aren't very many serial killers that were women. And I said, well, I know that, but I'd really like to get into the psyche behind a female serial killer. And so I chose who I believe is the most famous American female serial yeah. killer, Eileen Warnos. <laughs> right. And they did a whole movie about her. I think Charlize Theron, it was called Monster, and she looked a lot like her too. Oh, I thought she did an incredible job in Monster. So did Christina Ricci as well, who played her partner in that. Yeah, but yeah. It was a fantastic movie. I think they did a, a pretty good job. And, you know, there's actually another depiction of her from, if you're familiar with American Horror Story, the TV show. Yes. In season five, Hotel, there was also, I think, Lily Rabe played her. And she did a fantastic job of playing Eileen in that as well. So if you haven't seen that, anybody that's interested, it, she did a great job of depicting Eileen. Oh, see, that's just more incentive. And I think they have some of the seasons on either Netflix or something. And to my listeners, I'm going to throw a trigger warning out now because we're going to be talking about some serious stuff. So this may not be the episode for you if you are not really enjoying the murder kind of thing we're going to talk about and the way it happened and all those things. So just know that ahead of time. So I'm just going to pick your brain, Jordan. Let's talk about Eileen. So Eileen, for me, was super fascinating just because she didn't fit into the stereotypical yeah. serial killer mold, right? Because there's a there's a formula that makes serial killers that we yeah. know about. They fall into a specific, you know, genre of people. They are often abused in childhood, often yeah. by a parent, oftentimes sexually. Yeah. Um, they often exhibit symptoms very early on in their adolescence. For instance, bedwetting, mm -hmm. um, pyromania, uh, mm -hmm. and the harm of animals are all indicating factors that create a serial killer. And one of the main factors is that they are almost exclusively male, right. except for in the case of Eileen Warnos. And I think that her case is so fascinating for that reason, because she doesn't fit the mold. She, do she does fit the mold in the aspect that she was abused um, right. as a child. And I, I believe she was impregnated, if I can recall, by a family member when she was 13, oh, 14. Oh, I know that. Oh, my gosh. Um, yes. Yeah. And she gave birth and then put that baby up for adoption. So that would have been in the late 70s. I believe. So there is a, a Warnos, if they haven't since passed away, still out there. Wow. See, that's just, I didn't even know that. But I do know, what I know about her is that, yeah, yes, obviously she had a really rough childhood, like really rough. And I think by the time she was an adult, and you can fill in all the blanks, um, she became a sex worker. And, you know, it was almost like a defense mechanism for her. And then I think it, she just kind of went derailed. 
and she took it a little far. So why don't you fill in the blanks and let me know how right or wrong I am? I think so too. So, you know, she went through the system being very young. I think she got out of that system and when she was 14 again, became mm. pregnant, not to, not because of what she was doing because children can't give consent. So right. she was for sure sexually assaulted, became pregnant, gave that baby up for adoption, went through with that pregnancy. And then she managed to I believe hitchhiked her way to Florida, central Florida. So okay. she was what she called, and, and I'm quoting her here, a street walking hooker. That's what she said. So yeah. she was a she was a sex worker yeah. in Daytona Beach, I think primarily where that same area is where she did kill the six men that she did kill from, I believe it was 1989 to 1990 okay. that, she, okay. that she murdered these men. And they were all murdered by gunshot wound. So her defense was that they were intending to hurt her. Right. And as you can probably imagine, a sex worker in the late 80s, early 90s in Florida was yeah. probably dealing with a lot, oh, a yeah. lot. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, and I think they're all truck drivers, too, weren't they? Uh, for the most part, the ones that, that she took, I think the one that was not was a quote unquote family man, according to his family. Okay, but okay. he picked up a street walking sex worker. So I don't know how much of a family man he was, but that's her story versus his, which his story is no longer viable because he's deceased. Right. Um, but but yeah, I think they were for the most part picking her up, you know, like to partake in her services. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's why a lot of these, you know, it sort of went unnoticed for a while because I think they looked like robberies, like, oh, she was just robbing them. Right. But her defense was that these men were going to hurt her and that she stopped them before that happened. So in my mind, with her psyche having been, you know, abused for her entire life, and I'm not right. excusing her actions in any way, shape, or oh, form, right, mind right. you, <laughs> but being abused her entire life, I think by that point, she just probably snapped. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's funny because when you look at her past interviews, she really, truly seems unhinged, even just talking about certain things. Like, it's almost like her childhood drove her a little insane. Yes, very much so. And and on top of that, working in the sex industry, I can imagine, yes. was very detrimental to her mental health, yes. considering, you know, her state. You know, she was turning tricks for very little money, you know, so she wasn't a, a high-end escort. She right. was what she, again, verbatim, would call a street-walking hooker. That's what she called herself. So she was very much undereducated. She never, you know, finished school. Mm -hmm. um, and she was on the streets her entire life. And all she knew was sex work and abuse and and trying to make it. So I can imagine, you know, having grown up and especially and she does fit that mold of having been yeah. abused sexually as a child. So she does fit that cliche of the serial killer formula, essentially. Right. So she right. does fit that. She doesn't fit the other aspects of it, though. That's right. that's the thing. That's what makes her interesting, because most other serial killers kill for a sense of pleasure yes they do it because they feel they need to and in eileen's case i truly don't believe that that was why she was doing this i believe she snapped and she may have been unhinged and mentally unwell but i don't think she was doing it to feel a, to fill a quota like for instance you know with jeffrey Dahmer or john right, gacy right. You know, these men were filling a sexual quota a desire that they could only satiate by killing and torturing. Exactly. You know, I used to love Dexter and it's still one of my favorite series on, I think it was on HBO, no, Showtime. And I don't know if you ever watched it, but um, he, I, loved I, Michael C. Hall, 
I, you know, listen, well, yeah. And, you know, but I thought it was really cool um, how they handled it because, you know, his dad was a cop. He had been adopted, you know, I guess his dad found him as a young kid, you know, in his mother's blood. And, you know, they think that's what turned him. But I thought it was very interesting how they played in that movie where he said, listen, I'm not going to tell on you. Now I know what you are, but I need you to go after the bad guys. So you're more like a vigilante. I know you have to do this. You have to do this. Kind of like you said, I don't think Eileen needed to satiate that she just at at one point became snapped yeah so and that you're right that is such a difference between regular serial killers because I see anyone being cruel to animals first of all I want to kill them myself I'm kidding Mm. I would never do that but you know you just want to strangle them because there's just a soft place in my heart for any animal I don't care what it is and you know how scary for parents you know for them to see that kind of behavior do you think it could be a spectrum thing though Jordan for for Eileen for any serial killer that has that attribute that trinity of you know the bedwetting the abuse yeah Yeah. so it's referred to as the dark triad and so for instance could it be a spectrum as in for different I thought you meant like the neurodivergent spectrum and I was like well I don't think I'm a first serial killers as in certain ones may be more extreme than others and I'm sure that that's the case psychologically speaking I I would think so just because there are certain killers that you know, partake specifically in the torture and rape of their victims prior. A lot of times it's about the power. A lot of times it's simply about the, you know, touching, being close to someone. You know, if you look at Ed Gein, he was a necrophiliac. He was digging up dead bodies and consuming them and turning them into his home, surrounding himself with these things. So certain killers had... Something in there, you know, that je ne sais quoi, that that dark triad, those qualities that make them this killer. But for sure it would exist on a spectrum, you know, like, for instance, if somebody's just the Boston Strangler, he was strangling people. The difference between how they executed their victims and why um, is what makes them so fascinating. Let me ask you this, though. This might kind of surprise you and it surprises me that I'm even going here. Um, Do you think these people are innately evil? Do you think it's an evil thing or do you think it's more like I just need to do this? So the word evil to me, um, I think many different people may have a different definition of what evil may be. What may be evil to me may not be evil to someone else. So I think evil is the term that we would maybe adhere to this type of behavior collectively as a society who obviously don't want to eat and unalive other people. But to to them, do I think that they know that they're evil or they think that they're evil? I I don't think so. I don't think that they have the psychological capacity to differentiate right from wrong in a lot of cases. A lot of them know that it's wrong because they've been taught that it's wrong. But I don't believe, for instance, this is a perfect example. If you watch Jeffrey Dahmer's court case, if you watch his trial, which I watched in my psychology class, okay. it's fascinating. He describes dismembering and consuming humans the same way I would describe baking a pie. Right. Just that just that easily. He describes it with no remorse, no regret. It's not that I think that he is evil because of this. I think that there's something wrong in his brain yes. that makes him incapable of understanding what's wrong with it. He knows it's wrong because society told him it was wrong. But if that weren't the case, I don't think he would have known that it was wrong. I don't think he would have known, yes, I'm evil. I think that evil's the word that we then adhere to him because obviously that's what you would think for anyone that can do that. But to me, from a psychological lens, I look at him as someone who is inherently psychologically sick someone that has a flaw in their brain that makes them what you would consider evil 
Right. Because, you know, of Mice and Men, you know that book, I'm sure, very well. And I think it was, was it the brother or the cousin? I can't remember. That would just innately, you know, not even mean to just kill somebody. And he didn't mean to. And he was seemed like a really nice guy, you know. But, right. <laughs> but he was. Right. Um, oh, my gosh. What's his name? It's been so long since I've read oh, I know. I know. Um, the, the big guy. Yeah. He was just, he wasn't evil. Right. He was a big very slow, very yes. loving guy, yeah. you know? And yeah. the, for instance, uh, you know, I have a friend who's a big kid. He accidentally killed a kitten when he was younger. Okay. He squeezed it too hard and killed his kitten. And to this day breaks his heart that he did oh. it because he was, he was like four. He didn't know, you know, he right. squeezed it too hard. And I think that's the same instance for of mice and men. What happened there? Right. Um, right. I don't think that man was evil. He was, he's obviously fictional, but <laughs> if right, he were right. real, I don't think he's evil. I think that was accidental. And then if you look at someone, you know, like John Wayne Gacy, that's someone that you would consider an evil person who was right. raping and killing little boys under the guise of being a friendly party wow. clown. Yeah, exactly. Oh, listen, I tell you, and it was just, it was so gruesome. And he, and people admired him. Like he, you know, was a pillar in his society. Everybody thought he was a fantastic person, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, he, didn't he work at like Burger King's? He was a contractor in his town, and I know that he was very well liked and very well, you know, revered within his town. And I think he was, a, I think maybe he was the coach, or maybe he was a little league coach or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I might be wrong on that one. I'm sure the fact checkers will fact check me, but I know that he was very well liked. And then they found like some 30 something little boys hidden under his floorboards. Uh, so, yeah. But then you've got the Dahmer who goes after a specific type, you know, well, that's that's interesting. Dahmer went after predominantly. People of color, mm -hmm. um, men of color, and specifically gay men of color. Yeah. And that's because at the time in Milwaukee, especially during that time, they were people that he deemed society would not miss. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that's a special kind of evil. <laughs> and I can agree with that for sure. Um, when it comes to that, we may have different vernacular when we're talking about them. For me, again, it's just a huge psychological flaw that would then put him into the category of evil. But I don't think he realizes that he is. I don't think he's a demon sent up from anywhere oh, no, no, that's no. like, oh, I'm an evil and I'm going to get yeah, these. I don't yeah. think that that's the case. I think that he's just so psychologically flawed that he is now what we would consider evil. Yeah, and evil is kind of my blanket statement. May not be the appropriate word, you know, that's just a, a really, because you can't say, well, he's... It's very appropriate for anybody to consider <laughs> Jeffrey Dahmer as evil, for sure. Oh I just think it's you know, more nuanced than just that. To me, the premeditated part, you know? Yeah, there's something wrong with his brain that he wants to even remotely, you know, injure anyone, especially the, so the things that he did. Creepiest, and this might be a trigger warning for some of y'all. Yeah. One of the creepiest things about Jeffrey Dahmer is that he was sexually aroused by viscera. Yes. So specifically the insides of people, um, the bowels and things like that, because they were wet. And again, this is going to be a little bit trigger warning. Um, it, it's similar to uh, female arousal, you know, for okay. our anatomy, okay. um, the color and the texture of it. So he was aroused in the same way by viscera that a normal red-blooded man is going to be aroused by a woman. Wow. Oh, okay. Also, yeah. when he like drilled the hole in one of the guy's heads and put like what acid or something in his in his brain? More than one. Yeah, it was more than one. And his idea, his very convoluted idea was that if he were to drill a hole in the side of the head and insert acid, that it would kill the brain and make them essentially a zombie or a sex slave so that he wouldn't be alone. 
Yeah, because you know what? I think his parents were like disowning him because he did show some gay tendencies. I don't know if he really ever came out to them, but they were disowning him, correct? Yeah, so his mother was not in the picture, I believe, with Dahmer. And then it was his father who was, they were religious and strictly so. And then that's why they weren't accepting the fact that he was gay. Although his father did come to accept him when he was in jail. His father was around. Yeah, And then unfortunately he was killed. Well, not unfortunately. I'm not sure if that's a good or bad thing at this point. He was unalived in jail, yes. And that was intentional from what I, it's rumored, right, of course, that the guards allowed that to happen. I agree, Um, I agree. But I think the guards just turned a blind eye for that one. It's insane to me because we can learn a lot from people that are still alive. And just like with Ed Kemper, Ed Kemper, yes. In my point, you can learn so much and he would describe what he would do, why he did it, how he felt. And then some of the things he did to his mother. And it was really, it was a sexual situation with his mother that he did after he unalived her. And I was just like, oh my, how, I what? Yeah, there's a lot of issues with overbearing and or abusive and controlling mothers that quite literally factor into the equation that makes a serial killer. So that's another big factor. That's why a lot of them have issues with women and attack women sexually. That's where that comes from. Because if you think about a young child, who is being abused and beaten by the only woman that they know, they then learn what they have learned is that women are evil. Women are going to beat me. I have to do it back. Mm. And that's where that sort of sexual deviance starts to come in, especially when they're being abused during adolescence when they're developing, right? Yeah. You know, and it's crazy because if you think about it, it's all about the acceptance of someone you love that you hope loves you back and the lack thereof. And then, and I'm not saying that they don't have these tendencies beforehand, But sometimes if they're parented differently, I don't even know. When it comes to the psychological factor of it, it's nature versus nurture. It's it's both for these people. So everybody is born with the capability to kill other people. Most of us don't want to. But these men specifically are, I say men because the majority of serial killers are in fact men. The majority of them are born with this quality, this that makes them different. And then they have to have a certain amount of nurture that comes from environmental factors, especially during development, that creates that specific serial killer mold, right? right? So while we're all capable of murder, can I physically kill someone? Absolutely. Would I ever, in a case that it wasn't saving mine or someone else's own life? Of course not. So that's the difference, is that we're all capable of these things. It's just that certain switch that has to be flicked for people to want to. Oh, yeah, we have free will. You know, and it's, it's kind of like with Jack the Ripper. There's been so many different people that think they know who he is. Do you have any idea on those things? Jack the Ripper is one of the, oh, gosh, it's such a, such a crazy story, right? The only thing that we really know about good old Jack is that he was for sure a man of upper class yeah. and had medical training based on the incisions he was making. Right. So although he's never been identified, I think they did have some guesses as to who he may be, although it's so long. It was so long ago. He's long dead now. Right. So it's the coldest of cold cases, right? Um, but that's sort of all that they knew about him. And then also who killed the Black Dahlia. The Black yes. Dahlia murder was very similar to that where the murderer had very precise medical knowledge based on the incisions on the victim. Right. And, you know, they go after these sex workers again. You know, every single person he killed was a sex worker. But also some people speculate that Jack the Ripper, if it was him, he was also the guy at the Chicago World's Fair that had the house of horrors that they based the American Horror Story on. H.H. Holmes. Some people think it's him. 
you know, it could be. It could he could have moved and done the same thing, right? The the horror hotel. Oh, that's what you're talking about. The horror yes, hotel. That's yes. what I was like, wait a minute. What? I thought you were talking about a fun house. That's what I was like. Oh, oh. <laughs> am I missing one? I am I missing a killer? I, there's no way I missed the killer. <laughs> there's right. so many. When you reference one specific thing, it could be a couple of them. You know, like know. there's there's so many of them. You know, so many people speculated that it could have been H. H. Holmes, and so you know, you just like I said, we'll never know. There's some cases just just we'll never know. But um, also, I got to talk to you about something. I sent you my books, my Graveyard Watchman trilogy, and you've read the book one. But I'm so happy you're maybe going to start your own book. I am. I know. I haven't talked a lot about it. A few people do know that I'm writing it. I think uh, my channel knows that I'm writing it. And it's essentially all I can really say about the plot is that it's a way for me to tell my story of where I came from mm. without getting sued. Right. <laughs> so I lived a very colorful life uh, for someone of 37 years. So I've lived in three countries. I've lived mm. all of the United States, including Los Angeles for many years. And a lot of my story involves names that I can't talk about wow. <laughs> without getting yeah. a big old lawsuit. Yeah. So what I'm doing is essentially turning my story, my true life story into a fantasy. Well, I can only imagine when you used to be a model, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a, <laughs> It's dark times out there. You know, I think people look at LA now and I think people are really starting to see the yes. dark side of Los Angeles now way more than they ever did when I was living there and working there. Um, yes. But when you live in LA and you see really Harvey what's Weinstein. behind all the smoke and mirrors and how those people get famous and what they do to get famous oh, I know. and who they have to do to get famous. And then you realize, oh, I'm not going to get this role because, you know, this is sort of, I'll give you a good one. Sure. When I was modeling in LA, I went to a casting call and I was probably 25 or 26 at the time, which is really old for a model. <laughs> but I walked in and there were two models much younger than me sitting on the casting director's lap oh when I walked God. in. And I walked in and I handed them my book and he looked at me like I was a bug on the wall. Like, okay, go ahead and walk for us like that. And I did my walk in front of them. All the while, these two girls are sitting, laughing, giggling on this man's lap. And I walked out of that casting call and knew that I wasn't going to get the role. Uh, well, yeah, because you weren't sitting on the lap doing anything else with him. And I promise, and I, I'm not judging these girls. You got to do what you got to do, honey. But it's not for me. But they probably got that role. And I did not. And that's okay. And, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody that, that gets a role right. has to do those things. But I'm saying that certain roles require certain things that I was not willing to give up. Well, you know, there you go. Well, that says a lot about you. And you know what? With this book, I don't know if you've heard this, but you probably have. Write what you know, girl. Uh, that's, that's what we're putting down. And I don't want to get sued, which is why I'm changing it into a fantasy that way. It's fiction, y'all. It's fiction. It's that fiction. way I can't get any bullshit from people because I'm not using their names. Well, you know, and that's another thing. You know, there's aspects in my life in every single book I've written because, you know, whether it's location, whether it's a feeling, whether it's a character. And those are the books that do the best for me because it's something I knew. It's something I lived. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm still in the drafting phase. I'd really like to get copies in hand by the end of 2025. So that's, I'm giving myself a full this year and the next year to go through the writing and publishing process. I'd love to have that book on my table by 2025. And I might be the first one to read it. You'll have to send it to me, you know? You yeah, let me be a beta reader for you and uh, get a bunch of those. Right, I'll send you the draft and yeah, if yeah. you'd like to hear it. Well, you know, that's the thing, you know, get a lot of eyes on it before you do anything else, before you send it to an editor, get as many eyes on it as you possibly can. And then don't be friends with your editor. 
<laughs> no, seriously, don't be friends with them because they will not be truthful. You're not paying them to be nice. You're paying them to be truthful and they'll make you a better writer. They will kick your butt, but they will make you a better writer. Good. I'm glad to hear that. That is what I need to hear. I've got some, like I said, I've got some author friends, thankfully. Um, and I've got some, you know, lit major friends that I'm going to, I'm definitely going to send them into the, the beta. <laughs> they're going to yeah. yeah. get all of it. I'm sure. Hey, you guys got to proofread this for me, please. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's another thing. You got to hire a proofreader and you got to hire a cover artist. And, and then I don't know how to format. Do you? No, I had to hire a formatter. And plus you go through editing twice. Yep. It's, so. it's a lot of work. That's why I'm allotting myself the two years to get it done. So if this book isn't on shelves by 2025, I have failed you all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and how are you doing it with fantasy? Are you making it like, uh, what kind of fantasy is it going to be? So gosh, I have the title. I don't, I don't want to release the title oh, no, quite yeah. yet. Um, I have the title I have. It's, it's essentially going to be based similarly to yours. I grew up next to a cemetery. Nice. Okay. So the title has a lot to do with that. Um, I'm going to incorporate my real life experiences into my characters. So I'm just writing them as me. The protagonist is a young girl named Hazel, okay. who is going to essentially be me. It's going to, yeah, it's, it, I'm going to tell my story through her eyes. Nice. Hey, anything that has a cemetery involved, I'm all about it. Because guess what? Cemeteries are not scary places. I have visited cemeteries in, I believe, eight countries and counting. Oh my gosh. Well, listen, cemeteries are not scary places. They used to, people used to go and celebrate their loved ones there, have picnics in the 1800s in the Victorian era. We have picnics in the cemetery all the time. They're one of my happy places. It's very quiet. And... It's very quiet. But my thing is, too, it's a celebration, you know, because in 100 years, no one's going to give a crap what I wrote or what I have or what kind of car I drove. No one's going to care. Right. (laughs) That's right. I know. And that's that's the beauty of the cemetery is and that's why I do like to sit with people like that, you know, especially sometimes I'll clean off the graves, especially if they're overgrown, Um, especially if it's a young girl. A lot of times in our cemetery here in Pittsburgh, the Allegheny Cemetery, there's a lot of really old graves there. And sometimes they're young girls and they're they're all grown over and you can't see their name anymore so I make sure to clean those off for them to make sure that people can see that they were there they were a person it's it's okay you know you are creating some good karma right there and guess what you never know they might come visit you do you believe in ghosts I don't I wish I did I I, you know I (laughs) I wish I if there is so I don't believe in the concept of a soul I think the soul is sort of it's it's a vestige from a lot of religious teachings in my opinion I think that our life experiences and our genetics and everything that affects us is what creates our persona, our personality, which is what gives us, I would say, our quote unquote soul. I don't think that there's a non-corporeal essence inside of us that gets released when we die and that comes back in a, you know, anthropomorphic form that can haunt people. I don't believe in that, although I have seen things that I can't describe or explain. Right. And listen, I've got enough belief for both of us. So we're good there too. I would, you know, I wish ghosts, you know, here's the thing. This is, you want to know why I don't believe in ghosts? If, if ghosts are real, they can't hurt us. Right. Because if they could, no one that was murdered would allow their murderer to live. Well, you know, here's my thing. And, and I can't believe we're taking this direction. I believe this is just my take. I believe we come down and we say, listen, I want to know what it's like to have cancer. I want to know what it's like to murder someone. I want to know what it's like to do whatever, because it's unconditional. You go back and they're like, (laughs) you talk to God or whoever you think it is. And he goes, all right, well, you're learning from me. You're a fragment of me. So now I understand how Jordan saw it. Jordan chose not to have any connection with me. Leslie decided she did. It's one of those things. I know that's very easily explained away. But what would be the purpose if we're not here to evolve consciousness, to evolve intelligence, 
to evolve love and forgiveness. And so in my mind, maybe I was the killer one lifetime, maybe I'm not the next, but I'm learning how it is on both ends. Maybe that's how I understand that I have to be gracious to every single person that comes across my path, regardless of skin tone, regardless of religious affinity, regardless of anything. And that's the point where anyone would want to be. I can see that. I can see that. And that's the thing. That's the thing about belief is that it doesn't need to make sense. That's why it's a belief and not, you know, a facet of, of science. That's that's the thing is that, you know, there's there's so many things that we don't know. I'm atheist, but I'm not arrogant enough to say I know everything. Of course I don't. Right, of course, yeah. none of us do. Oh, and yeah. I think that the human mind wants to make sense of that. And I think that that's where belief comes from until we can figure it out is the belief is filling in the gaps that we haven't filled yet. And I'm never going to judge somebody for believing in something like that, even if I don't, you know, like that's OK. Um, but, you know, I've had experiences with we, I've seen things that I shouldn't have been able to see. I felt things that I shouldn't have been able to feel before that made me scared. And I don't even believe in that. So for me, I'm like, hold up. That was creepy. You know, and and like, as, like I said, you know, I I don't believe in it, but it doesn't mean that it didn't send the hackles up on my neck when it happened. Right. And you know, my thing too is that's your journey here. And that's the way it's supposed to be for you. You're supposed to, you know, live your life in a whole different way than maybe you did in a past life. Cause I believe in those two. I know you don't. Um, so, you know, I've talked to so many different near death experiencers who have such a different, and all of them were either, they did have some kind of form of religion. All of them left their religions because, you know, God's not about anything to do with religion that I've noticed when I interview these people. And they do say the reason they see Jesus or whatever, is just because they were grown up indoctrinated that, that they were taught that. So they may see Jesus, but then they're like, they don't want to come back because they're like, it's just, you don't understand how amazing. She, and one person that I interviewed, she was on the operating table. She rose above. She knew every single thing about every single person operating on her. She knew why the doctor became a doctor. She knew how, how many kids he had, his wife, her, her name. She knew about the other doctor that was assisting him, why she became a doctor. And she was like, how the heck did I know all that stuff? And then when she did come back, she said, your brother told me to tell you you were doing such a good job. Is your brother's name blah, blah, blah. And she's like, what? Because he was obviously deceased. So when you have time after time and people saying over and over and over again, some of the same kinds of, of situations, it's hard not to believe, Jordan. I think for me, I think this falls more into the collective consciousness theory mm-hmm. that we do share a consciousness, whether it be, you know, we know about it or not. And I think that that's super interesting. Yeah. Um, when it comes to NDs, I've heard a lot about them as well because I make content about, you know, beliefs and things like that. Yeah. Um, I've always chalked up every near-death experience to the release of DMT in the brain that happens near death. That's usually so, what doctors say. Yes. So that's me because people say, you know, if you if you speak with someone who was raised, you know, in Asia, they don't dream about Jesus. They don't dream about the, the, oh, the right, Western right, ideas. Right. When they have a near-death experience, they dream about what they were taught. Right. right? Exactly. So it's not the same vision that everyone gets people get the same visions from the same regions because the same regions are likely to teach the same things but if you look at different regions when it comes to ndes they are different which makes it super interesting to me and then i've never taken dmt but I've, i've talked to people who do and they say it's it's called the spirit molecule because it makes you have this essentially spiritual religious experience kundalini which is what, experience yeah, yeah which is yeah. what people say is yeah. the same thing that happens when you are near well, death until you hear a doctor say hey listen i was an atheist i didn't believe any of this and then it happened to me and i was like okay there you go <laughs> 
Yeah, well, there's lo- but there's loads of the same stories that say I was religious until it happened to me, and now I'm an atheist. So there's loads exactly. of there's loads of anecdotal, you know, evidence. I should say, quote unquote, evidence from people. There's loads of individual experiences that that happen that are going to sway. But it's no one's going to change your mind unless it right. happens to you. Exactly. And that's what happens. You know, people uh, they have an experience, whether it be religious or near death or whatever, and they have an experience and then that changes their mind. They say, you know what I believe or I don't. And that's okay. Whatever they want to believe, whatever comforts you in this lifetime, whatever makes your nights sleep easier, however, whatever makes you a better person, I say believe in that. As long as it makes you better, as long as you're, you know, out there being a good person and you're not judging others. Too often people use their beliefs to sort of self-elevate themselves and segregate others and treat others poorly because they don't share those beliefs. Instead of open up a conversation and saying oh that's cool how about this you know and a lot of people just don't want to hear it that's it this is what i believe and i don't care what you believe and you're wrong and that's why and i think that's the issue that i hold um, with most people that are religious and that's why i like talking to people like you because you know my husband pretty much doesn't believe in any of this either but you know he's accepting and he's open-minded and maybe i've swayed him a little bit probably not but my thing is i'm not here to change his mind That's not his journey. That's not your journey. Your journey is to believe what you want to believe. And if people would just be accepting of everyone's thoughts about religion or their way of life or whatever it is, we'd have such a better planet. I'm telling you, that's why I make the content that I make. I'm trying to to call out that hypocrisy and to tell people, listen, it's fine if you believe that. It's fine if you don't. But what's not cool, what's not fine is you're judging other people for not believing or loving the exact same way that you do. Everybody's different. Your path is not mine to walk. Right. And that's okay. I I love that you're open-minded enough to not be, no, it's my way or the highway. Because that's why we're in a problem in this world right now. That's why we have wars. All I can say is that when someone says they believe in something, that's cool. I'm not convinced, but I'm not going to judge you because you are. That's all right. It's as simple as that, you know, like when it comes down to it, like there's certain things that I can't explain and I'm not going to pretend that I know them. And I think that's, that's one grievance I do have with atheists is that a lot of them are very arrogant and narcissistic. And that comes from, I think it's a trauma response from being told they were wrong their whole life. Yeah. So now they're turning around and saying, well, actually you're wrong. And I totally understand that response, but it, also it, it paints us as as cold and uncaring and, and again arrogant when we don't have all the answers either we may not believe in the answers that you guys have but that doesn't mean that we have the answers and exactly. i think that more atheists need to make peace with that hey we don't we don't know it all either we know a lot based on science but we don't know it all either and that's okay let these people believe they want to believe then let them believe as long as they're not hurting anybody it doesn't hurt me at all yeah you know and honestly I don't have all the answers I'm not for sure of anything I know what I've seen and heard and all the things and I can actually talk to my mom now who is deceased which my listeners know I'll tell you about that later but it's one of those things where the acceptance part is the problem that I have with all of this because you know we have extremists on one end or the other you're either one way or the other. There's no middle ground. Guess what? There's always gray. That's why you're Jordan the Gray Witch. Come on. There's always a shade of gray. Yeah. And I think that black and white thinking is not only detrimental to the individual, but it's detrimental to society. Yeah. There's no right or wrong. It's not necessarily good or evil because what someone thinks is evil, like we discussed earlier, may not be evil to someone else. These things are subjective. They are not objective. And, and that's the difference. And I think that a lot of people, if they understood the shades of gray, yeah. it would make the world a better place. It really- Really what girl what an amazing way to end this conversation because I could talk to you forever you know listen um tell everybody where they can find you on TikTok and Instagram because you guys if you don't follow her you're missing out 
<laughs> so my name is Jordan Dwayne. I go by Jordan the Grey Witch. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok of the same name. That's it. I just I make little TikToks. I have ADHD, so sometimes they're about destroying <laughs> the patriarchy. Sometimes they're about what books I'm reading. Sometimes they're about what outfit I have on. There's really no rhyme or reason to my content. There's a little bit for everybody. It's not for everybody, and if it's not for you, that's okay. Listen, I started my uh, TikTok for my books and my podcast, and now it's a home decor page. So I understand that. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know. It's also all of them. So I'm not a one trick pony and neither are you. Jordan, you've been amazing. And I'm going to add all of your information in my show notes. And thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. Well, I love providing because I want to know at no cost. So if you like what you heard, please leave me a five star review or you can just buy me a cup of coffee. It's kind of like a Patreon, but you don't have a monthly subscription and you can give whatever you feel led to give. I am a one woman show and I do all of my scheduling and my interviewing and my editing. So just know your support is so greatly appreciated. And one more thing, I am a paranormal romance novelist and you can find all of my books on Amazon. Just look up my name. I'm very easy to find. Thank you guys again and I will see you next week.